Welcome everybody to Exact Show. I'm here with Eric, Nick, uh, Brian, uh, Dan, the best dressed man in the DC land, rocking a suit again. And our special guest today is a former video game designer. You might have seen him on High Score, uh, Game Over, Atari on HBO, um, a New Jersey native actually before he moved out. So we're happy to have him. Howard Warshaw, how you doing, buddy? I'm great, but it's Howard Scott Warshaw. I always use my full name. I'm sorry about that. I never, I didn't know whether or not to say that. I was like, all right, maybe not use the middle name, but uh, all right, Howard Scott. No, I, it's my brand. I'm just all about the middle name. That's just how it is. <laughs> so down to a finger, but in this case, I'm just going with the name. That, that works for me, man. All right, uh, so Howard, uh, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff here. Uh, your your book coming out, um, your video game design. But first, we like to do a backstory. So, like, how did you get into the gaming industry, and uh, how did you decide you wanted to do video game designing? Uh, I came into video game development through the back door. I mean, it was the last thing I was trying to do was become a video game maker. What I was trying to do was do some real-time microprocessor-based control programming. That's what I was all about. That's what I did in college. That's what really got me excited. I went to Hewlett Packard and all the excitement that I had found in computing just drained away. It was gone. Hmm. It was like the software pasture. And so I found out that at Atari, two things were going on. One, they do microprocessor-based real-time control programming, which is what I wanted to do. And two, they do just some wacky stuff, <laughs> just you know, some outrageous people, because at HP, I was a real zookeys, because uh, I was a little more outrageous than most people at HP tend to be, and I was bored. I was just bored out of my mind. I wasn't happy with where I was working, and I wasn't happy with what I was doing, and Atari seemed like the answer to both. The fact that they did video games was a plus, right? yeah. but I always loved games, but I wasn't particularly like a video game nut or anything at that point, but I got into it pretty solidly now now when you got into like the designing of it like did you find it easy to do like it just kind of transferred over from what you were used to um the ability to program the 2600 transed over uh you know transferred over from what i knew uh that was a very natural thing the idea of making up something fun uh that doesn't come from any place other than just inside your soul. I mean, either, you know, you can connect with fun or you can't. And I am, I am a fun guy, but I'm no mushroom, as they say. So it's like I am all about enjoyment and finding fun and not being boring because uh, boredom was my biggest enemy. Right. Um, so with Atari, obviously it was a new, it was, I guess you could say one of the first based like video gaming systems. I know at the time it really was, uh, did you know it was going to be the like first of many when you got in there or did you think this was just like a flash in the pan of something new? Oh no, I didn't think it was a flash in the pan. Once I saw what was happening, I knew this was here to stay. I mean, the way I look at it was we weren't just making video games. The way I looked at it was we were taking a passive medium in television and turning it into an active or interactive medium. Hmm. That's, just, that's just a huge thing to do. And when you look at it in terms of pioneering a new medium, you know, once radio came out, you might not have loved the shows that were on it, but you knew radio wasn't going to go away yeah. until the Internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, it's a, I, I knew it was just, this was something that was here that was going to last, it was going to go, and I was just really excited to be a part of 
or something like that. Not because I like to make games, but because I like to make media. I'm a big fan and producer of media of all sorts. And that's the way I looked at it also. It was just, it was a broadcast medium. It was super exciting. And yeah. looking back now, you did like a lot of like the first things ever. Like uh, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark was like the first movie video game ever created. And like looking back now, like did you have any like control over like what movie you, you did for that one? Or is that one just money thrown at you from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh no, that was, that was all about Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's okay. no question. But when you talk about first, you know, Yars Revenge, my first game, set a lot of industry standards. I did a lot of stuff right out of the shoot. My first game, I did a lot of things no one had ever done before because, you know, I don't think like most people do. <laughs> this was one place where that comes in handy. Usually that's a problem because everybody's just like, what's wrong with Howard? <laughs> Why do you say things like that? But uh, Atari was a place where this really worked. And so, uh, and Raiders was, it was the first movie conversion to a game. And I actually had to go interview in LA with Spielberg to, uh, wow. to, to get the chance to do that game. And it was cool. It's a whole chapter in my book is all about, you know, when I went the first time I met Spielberg and what happened, because that wasn't just a meeting. That was like a whole day that was an unbelievable experience. And it was capped off when I uh, called Spielberg an alien my whole theory about why he's an alien, which I think is what got me the opportunity to do the game. And then why, like, why not do like Yar's Revenge based off of like a Star Wars thing? Because wouldn't that be a pretty easy transition to do? What, say that you mean go from Yar's to Star Wars? Yeah, because I feel like that would be like an easier like transition to like, rather than going right into Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it could be, but that wasn't the next property that was mm -hmm. up and I wanted to stretch myself and do something else. Although what I should have done was Yars Wars. That would have been a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> was there any video game? You said, uh, like Dan brought up, Raiders of the Lost Ark was the first movie to video game. Was there any other, I, I might be jumping ahead a bit, was there any other movie you felt you could adapt a game to at that time that you really wanted to do? You don't mean like E.T., do you? No, no, we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get to E.T., but yeah, like, was there anything, like, uh, I mean, it was the early um, 80s. No, or... I wasn't really, I wasn't out searching for properties. Okay. Because what I was all about, was, you know, there was two basic ways to do games back then. There was, you could do an original game or you could do a coin-op knockoff. And coin-op knockoffs were very popular because you had a pre-sold market and everybody was excited about the coin-ops. But, you know, Coin-op technology is always advancing, right? And the 2600 technology was static. It was stuck. So as time went on, coin-op games get better and better, and that means they're going to look worse and worse on the 2600s. I was not a fan of doing conversions. I wanted to do some breakout stuff. I'm, I don't mean I want to do breakout. I want to do, you know, I wanted to do games uh, that were fresh, something that was new. I liked inventing gameplays and techniques. So I would come up with game concepts, and then if there was a property, if there was like a movie property, uh, I was okay with picking that up. My fourth game, which very few people know about because it wasn't released until 20 years later, was, was an original game. And then they picked up the license for the A-Team. And so it was going to be the A-Team game. And then they dropped the license for the A-Team. And then it was going to be back to Saboteur, which was my original name for the game. Mm -hmm. And then it was going to be the A-Team again. And then it was Saboteur again. And then Atari blew up and folded before they released the game. <laughs> But people dug it up and released it 20 years later on the uh, Atari joystick. Nice. Uh, Nick, I want to pass it to you, man, if you got any questions here. I know you're like the video game uh, 
Savant. <laughs> well, uh, first off, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and congratulations on being a MoMA artist. That's a huge accomplishment. I love hearing about that kind of stuff. Thank you, Nick. I really, that, that, that is a major bucket list item for me. And I had no idea how that was ever going to happen for me because I cannot draw or make music or anything like that. So <laughs> I lucked into that one. But I, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I guess, uh, I guess uh, just from, from my background and just kind of the working environment that I have right now, um, you talked about the consoles being stagnant at the time. Uh, how did that work with like working with dev kits and just kind of like, like, did you just get the hardware and it's like, that's all you have to work with. And for the foreseeable future, we don't know what's going to change. Just keep making things on it because we're constantly updating things. Right. See, like nowadays, when you release a console, your next console is already in design. Mm. Right? You're already right. working on the next because people understand the idea of a product lifecycle. <laughs> and one of the big problems, and one of the things, one of the main themes in my book is trying to explain what the video game crash of the early 80s was all about. Because a lot of, you know, everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. You know? <laughs> I have a lot of insights about it because I have, I have a very broad background. And so I, to sum it up, what I think really happened that caused the video game crash was it was the first product lifecycle. That's the real simple reason. It wasn't ET. Mm -hmm. It was first product lifecycle. Nobody knew what to do. Nobody knows right. anything, right? It was just, it was the first time. And so people were kind of just feeling their way through. There were people, there, were a, there was a large faction of people at Atari who really wanted to get going on a next generation console. They knew it. We also had the 400-800 computer, which they ended up co-opting to make the 5200. 5200 is really just a repackaged 400-800 computer, okay? And it's a better machine than the 2600 to make games, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a next gen machine by any means because they never designed a next-gen machine. And uh, there were people who wanted to do it, and the management really, they didn't, they saw it as slitting the throat of their cash cow. Why would you put out a new console when we've got just this amazing river of cash flowing into our door? That's mm -hmm. got to be nuts, right? right? But they didn't get the idea that that river is going to dry up someday, and mm -hmm. you need the next river coming downstream. And they just, they didn't grok that. Wow. So, so when you describe uh, going from the, um, uh, pardon me, the twenty six hundred to the fifty two hundred, right? Um, it it almost it almost sounds similar to going from the PlayStation Four to the PlayStation Four Pro. It's not really a new console. They've just updated it a little bit and repackaged it, but it's still relatively the same console. It's funny that we're doing that uh, decades later. Oh no, that's not what I'm saying. No, I mean okay. going from the twenty six hundred to the fifty two hundred was a huge step forward. Oh, okay, it just okay. wasn't a full-on next... I mean, the thing was, the technology that went into that computer was about the same age as the technology that was in the 2600. Mm -hmm. It's just that it was much more expensive technology, right? <laughs> and that's the thing. So by the time we got a few years down the road, that tech was less expensive, and so you could afford to put that out as a machine. It was still way more, it was more like going from the PS1 to the PS2. Gotcha. You know, it, okay. was, it was a substantial improvement in technical capability, but it wasn't on the order of like what you were going to see soon with like Sega Genesis and the Saturn and, and, so and the Nintendo. Do you now, think that's some going let, let me ask this real quick because I know. You guys are talking the same language, but us four <laughs> yeah. unintelligent people, 
don't understand the 2,600 and 5,200. Could you just explain what those numbers mean? I, I I'm sorry. I get yeah, it. I get it. 5,200. I'm sorry. No, but you want to make sure everybody out there can get it, and I get it. And that's not your fault. That's my fault. I want to take full responsibility for this. We'll blame I introduced all this mumbo-jumbo gumbo, and now I've spilled it. And now I don't even have a napkin. This is unbelievable. What kind of show is this when there's no napkin? But, you know, so the truth is the 2600 was the first VC. It was the VCS. It was the first gaming console. It wasn't the first video game console ever, but it was the first one to really hit the market and really go big. And it was out there and well distributed. And then the 5200 was Atari's next generation console. You know, like you have the PS4 and the mm -hmm. PS5, and now you have the next Xbox and you have the next Wii, you know, everybody puts out their next console. So mm -hmm. this was the next console that Atari put out ultimately. And it oh. had better hardware and more capability, and you could do more elaborate games on it than you could on the first system. Is, yeah. that, is that clear, Doug? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I'm sorry for uh, creating uh, the okay. intellectual logjam there. That's my I always, I always wondered this, too, because I have had a, I had a lot of systems. I had Sega Saturn, which a lot of people didn't have, I feel like. Um, uh, when you say that, like, uh, it, I feel like some game systems and consoles, and Nick might agree with this, come out ahead of their time. Like, they have the idea, but they're not ready. I felt like Sega Dreamcast was that. Personally, it's exactly had, what Dreamcast was. Right? It's like they had like the online thing in their mind in the works, but like the world wasn't ready because it came out what nine nine ninety nine. That was like the big thing, and it just was like three years away from the, figuring it out. The and it internet just, wasn't there yet. The right, technology right. wasn't yeah. there yet. So, so do you think like going go on, Howard? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes ideas are ahead of their time. And uh, it doesn't make it a breakthrough idea. What it does, it makes it an impractical thing that doesn't work at the time. Mm -hmm. I had some great ideas for stuff at Atari that, you know, they just weren't ready for. A lot of people say E.T. was ahead of its time. I don't know. It created a big mess at that time, so couldn't have been too far ahead of its time. It de that definitely caused the uh, car crash. I will, I will say, because uh, you have a great like sense of humor about the et thing and uh from what i hear i've never played it personally from from what i hear it's actually not a bad game like now like you said it's ahead of its time and people play it now i want to know like it's not right, let, let's get into that like 1982 you're coming off a high you're coming off raiders of the lost ark you're coming off like i, I mean you're you're being designated to these big you're meeting with spielberg for god's sake so like go into like the pressure that was and when you were given that assignment you were just like, uh, hold on, I got, what, two weeks? Well, this isn't going to fucking work because they tried to be oh, the five weeks. Five weeks, no, sorry. This, yeah. is, this is exactly what my upcoming book is all about. Right. It's the whole thing of my experience at Atari and the ET thing and what went on there. But the first thing I have to say is please, please don't let anybody know that ET is not the worst game of all time. Okay. <laughs> I really need to defend that title you know, <laughs> because Yars Revenge is frequently cited as one of the best games of all time. And so as long as E.T. hangs on to worst game of all time, I got the greatest range of any designer in history, right? So, you know, I'm very proud of that, you know? So, you know, so, so Nick's on the, you know, it's not so bad. But let me tell you, let me tell you about what a horrible game E.T. is. You know, E.T. E. E. Was, a, was a tough situation because it, it was given to me with five weeks. It wasn't really given to me. It was sort of 
dumped in my lap and I accept it because no one else would. Mm -hmm. This is a time when games, the average game takes at least six to eight months to do, right? That's how long a game takes. Like my first game, Yars Revenge, took seven months. Raiders of the Lost Ark took 10 months. And these were typical development times. And then they said, okay, we need a game in five weeks. My boss's boss, who they called first, uh, just said, can't have it. You know, we can't do a game in five weeks. It's just ridiculous. You can't do it. And after my grand boss basically told the CEO, you can't do it, for some reason, the CEO still called me directly. He actually called me in my office. I got a call from the CEO, which, believe me, never happens. <laughs> he calls me up. He says, Howard, we need ET. We need an ET game for September 1st. This was July 27th. So it was five weeks and a half day because this was already late afternoon. He says, can you do it? And I said, absolutely I can do it, <laughs> provided, provided we reach the right agreement. There was no hesitation in my mind. Why? Because I was so full of myself after having done Yards and Raiders. I just felt unstoppable. And I just thought, also, I knew the big secret. I knew the big secret, the magic secret. And the secret is, is that uh, if you want to do a game in five weeks, if it's even possible to do a game in five weeks, the way you do it is you don't take a game that would take six months and try to do that in five weeks because that can't work. Mm -hmm. What you do is you have to design a game that can be done in five weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So the big thing about doing a game really fast is ordinarily a game is what I call it like a voyage of discovery. Right? You start off with a concept, you start working your way through, and you play with it, and you poke it, and you do different stuff, and you learn things along the way. And the game defines itself as it goes along, and it takes as long as it takes to produce a good game. Mm. Well, this way, it was an inversion of thinking, because it's not a programming problem. This is a design problem. And so the design challenge is, can I come up with a basic game that is programmable in five weeks? And then the question is, how fun can I make it? How much fun can I make given that I can deliver a game in five weeks as opposed to how long does it take to deliver a fun game? That was the inversion. And the answer is in five weeks, you can do a game that's not quite as much fun as you need it to be, I think was the uh, upshot of it. But it was close. Now, when did you know the, like when the reaction came in? Um, like when you made the game like and you presented it, were you just like, uh, shit, like, fine, here it is. Or were you like, okay, this this isn't that bad. You know, it's like the people on Chopped. You ever watch Chopped? And they make their plate, and they're like, okay. This I love Chopped. Yeah, they're like, this isn't that bad. I got this well, done. And, okay, I didn't let me feel like I left any ingredients out. I mean, I had the whole basket in there, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I might not have elevated some of the ingredients. Yeah. I think you could say. Yeah. What was you know? What, if you really want to talk, chat. What was the but, first? What was the first sign of trouble? I guess Scott trying to get at when you're like, here you go, and you start getting that. These are really good questions because one of the things you have to understand about ET was this happened before the internet, right? So there wasn't like a drop of the game, and then everybody picks it up, and within three days you've got like. You know, chatting boards full of feedback and information and stuff. Nothing like that. So basically, I finished this game by September 1st. And first of all, it's like, hooray, everybody's excited because the game's done and it made it through quality assurance. So, so that's good. It was a big success. 
And then it goes to manufacturing, so nothing happens for a few months. Then it comes out like in mid-November and it's going out. And you know, there aren't really a lot of reviews and stuff going on yet, but it's climbing the billboard charts, right? So the next real feedback that I have is the billboard sales charts. And let me tell you, in December of 82, I have two games in the top 10. Mm. Right? Both Raiders and ET are in the top 10 in the billboard sales. So I am smoking big cigars, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so it's going really well. And then after the holiday, you know, the word starts to spread out because, because there's no net, there's no, there's, all it is is just chat. It's gossip. And then people start, you know, saying, you know, the game sucks. It doesn't really, it's not really good. It's not really working. And then returns start coming back. And that's when they first started really getting a whiff of, it looks like there's trouble here. Something's going wrong. So I had had like six to eight months of positive feedback at some level before it started to look problematic. Now, when did you turn that into, like, I'm sure at first uh, for a while you were, I mean, down in the dumps about it, but it seems like I said earlier, like, you kind of run, you run with it now. You know, like, oh, yeah, it is the worst game ever. Like, did that, to, like, it's Bill Buckner didn't go back to Fenway Park till 2007. So, like, did, when did you realize, let me, let me just embrace this shit and run with it? You know, how long did that take? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, it's a really good point because it, it wasn't the next day. I promise you that. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and right after the game was done, it wasn't so much is it a good or a bad game. I was just burnt out. Mm. I was just busted. Because Raiders was like a huge 10-month effort, and I followed that with a five-week death march. You know, basically it was unbelievable. So I was burnt out for a while. I sat with that. And then after Atari, like, you know, through the late 80s, yeah, it was a bummer. You know, but the, the big story wasn't really E.T. so much. The big story was the, get, the crash, the, the industry crash. It wasn't E.T. It wasn't until like into the 90s that people started to say, well, E.T. caused the crash and started to connect that and tie it up. I mean, people said, yeah, it was a bummer and they paid too much for the license and, and they lost money. But the thing is, you know, Atari lost less than 50 million on that game. And I mean, probably a lot less than 50 million. When you consider the fact that that was nearly a $4 billion industry, okay, 50 million doesn't destroy a $4 billion industry. It just doesn't make any sense, no. right? But it got this rep. It got the reputation. So when that started to happen, I started to think, ah, it's kind of interesting. So I was already downstream enough to have some distance. So it didn't feel like right in my face. People put it in my face, you know, but it didn't feel that bad. And then I started to think, well, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a make lemonade kind of guy. Right. right. I mean, that's who I am. And so when I started to think about this, I thought, huh. So with about 8K of 6502 assembly code, which for the non-nerds is basically a type of computer language you use to program on the 2600, which, by the way, is just the first Atari console, so we can totally unjargon the whole thing. <laughs> so, basically, that I can use a very small amount of computer code to destroy a $4 billion industry? Yeah, baby. You know, that's, that's reach. You know, that's effective coding. So I think so on that level, it was kind of cool. You also have to remember that back then, yeah, it wasn't a great game, but, you know, the worst game of all time 
when I was programming games at Atari, there wasn't any such thing as an all-time, right? right? There was yeah. no all-time. It takes a while to have an all-time. So yeah. this was, they were all newies back then. There were no oldies, you know? So as it, as it started to get into the 90s and the internet started to take over and the internet is super hungry for content, right? It's one thing the web needs is content. It is a content vacuum. And so one really easy, fast form of content that people queued into is, is lists. Top 10 lists, bottom 10 lists, the best five, the worst seven, the hateful eight, all of those lists, you know, they're all there. And so, and ET just started topping a lot of worse video game lists. It was a natural phenomenon. And, uh, and then after a little of that, then there was the, uh, the whole myth started around the, the urban legend around the buried carts in Alamogordo. Right. Yeah. So that started to pick up steam. That's when I first uh, heard about the ET game. I watched that special with the landfill in New Mexico, and I was like, "Holy shit! Like this is this is mind-boggling." Also, I have to say for Dan, really quick, trust me, I've never played ET, but your game is better than Bill Lambeer's Combat Basketball for Super Nintendo. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Go on, Dan. So, with the video game crash, um, like. I know that, like, with Moore's Law, like, of technology, everything doubles every, what, year or something like that? Every like, two years, everything, yeah, has. So, like, was that, like, just, like, complacency with, at Atari or, like, the ignorance of that? Or what was, like, what do you think was, like, the cause of that crash then? Okay, so, and again, this is, like, a major part of my book. You know, Once Upon Atari is coming up is all about, you know, I have several chapters that are devoted to what made the crash happen. In my opinion, it's a, it's a combination of two things. One, well, it's mostly, it all, it all stems from this idea that it was the first product life cycle, right? So nobody really knew what they were doing. But what was the biggest mistake that was made in the first product life cycle? What, what it was, was that Atari never locked the console. When I say locked the console, what I mean is like, when, when, when games were first being made, the only people who made games were the console producers. They were the only because a video game console is a pretty sophisticated piece of technology, right? Yeah. And for somebody to reverse engineer and effectively figure out how it works, there are some genius people who can do that here and there, but you know, nobody's making a living off of that all over the place, right? It's a tough thing to do. So there wasn't, there wasn't even a thought that somebody else was going to figure this out and start programming games on it because there's nobody else out there to do it, right? And initially nobody had left. The, you know, the manufacturers. So they treated a game console like a phonograph, right? Like a, like a vinyl record phonograph. Like you put the, or, or, a, or a tape player or a DVD player, right? The thing is, by the time you get to DVD players though, DVD players can check zone things. They can look at a disc and decide whether or not to play it. Record players don't have any way of deciding whether or not to play a record. You just, you have the record player, and somebody makes a record, it doesn't matter who made the record, nobody cares, you put the record on, you play it. A video game console has the capacity to examine the game it's going to play and make decisions about it. Nobody did that originally. Nowadays, if you want to put a game out on the PlayStation, you have to submit it to Sony, Sony puts it through their whole approval process, you pay a huge amount of money for that to Sony, and then you've got to pay a royalty deal to Sony and a licensing fee to Sony. 
So basically, before you get to sell your first cartridge of a game on the Sony PlayStation, Sony has already made a lot of money from you <laughs> and employed a lot of people in the process. What happened with the 26th, but what they're doing is they're controlling the quality of the games that are coming out on the console. And that Atari didn't do that. So once Atari made another huge mistake, which was undervaluing their programmers, so some of the programmers left, formed their own companies, and for the first time, you saw third-party developers in video games. And now these people could make games that they could just pop out and sell directly on the 2600, and Atari couldn't stop them. So Atari missed that opportunity to license their base unit. And so part of it is they miss an, a revenue stream because they can't charge people to put games out on their system. But the real problem, the real ugliness that happened there was the idea that they couldn't do real quality control. So what happened was there was a tremendous glut of crap. <laughs> Worse than E.T., I mean that bad. People just started putting out just horrible, horrible games because everybody wanted to get into the profit windmill. Mm -hmm. and, and there was so much garbage out there that consumers got to the point where they couldn't tell if, you know, because the games were expensive. But people couldn't tell if they were getting a bomb or if they were getting a decent game. And that became a problem. And people became very uh, dis disheartened with the whole unit and the whole thing. And there wasn't like a next-gen system coming up right away to really impress people to move it forward. And those are things that led to the crash and made some people think games were a fad. It was a flash. Look, it, it was here. Now it's gone. Nothing. I knew it wasn't going to go away, but it, it was, you know, there was some pretty ugly mismanagement that went on, but... It's hard to say if it's really mismanagement because really what it is is a, it's a lack of foresight. Nobody knew better. It made sense to do it the way they did it at the time. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to so say. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, I was, was going to say, too, it's more of like it's not really an oversight. It's more of like lack of experience. Like you have this brand new thing that you know everybody wants, but you don't know really what it, it's capable of. You don't know what it could be. You know, so not licensing things like that, allowing your coders to go other places and do other things and undervaluing them. You know, it makes sense. It's all mistakes that they've made, you know. Right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and even the designers didn't know. You know, when the 2600 comes out, when the VCS system comes out, the people who made it, they figured there were maybe eight to ten games you could do on that system. That's what they figured. And there's, I think there's over around 1,500 titles that are done. When you look at the games that came out in 77 and 78 and compare those to the games that were coming out in 81 and 82, it's, it was way beyond what even the designers of the system had envisioned people being able to do on it. But that's what happens. If you put out at what, like an open kind of system, and the thing was like in television was a very tightly controlled system that didn't have a lot of tech flexibility to it. It gave you some nice capabilities, but it didn't give you the ability to innovate with it or do extra special stuff. The 2600 was so primitive that it had a lot of capabilities that were yet to be discovered. And you take people like me and the people who I was working with were just like nuts. <laughs> you turn us loose on something and say, you can't do much with this. And we'd like, oh, yeah, watch this. You know, it was sort of like a whole hold my beer convention. <laughs> so, just, you know, watch what, us go and, and look at what people figured out. It was amazing. What's well, like, 
Go on. What's like something that like back then was like holding like that you had a thought of that was holding you back technology wise? Like say like virtual reality or something like that. Like what was something that like you wish that you could have done back then? Well, one thing we, I went to a brainstorm in 1981, and there was and I I had a proposal and this you know when you talk about like ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I wanted to do was do a thing where you have several characters and what you can do is you can assign them personality traits or characteristics, and then you just turn them loose and watch it play out. I used to call it the video vignette, right? Where you could set up a, some preset conditions and watch things play out. And like now, you know, you have things like alternate storylines and different ways you can go and uh, you can experiment, you can, you can change player characteristics and things like that. Back then on the 2600, that was just stupid, right? Because there was no way you're going to have any kind of meaningful delivery on that system of something at this level of sophistication. So there was one where I thought, we're not at the technology yet to do it. But, you know, Atari displaying more than two player character graphics, you know, was the challenge. You know, we would have loved to just have more sprites. You know, if we could have had like 16 or 32 sprites, forget like 72,000 polys or something like that. You know, just the graphic capability was so limited. We had to abstract things, which in some ways made it easier to deal with, but man, high poly counts give you a lot more opportunity. Howard, I have to ask, because obviously you're like an expert at this, you know a lot. Like, what game did it... I'm sure we all have the same game in mind. Now, to me, simplicity kind of means better for video games. For instance, uh, baseball games when I'm playing. Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, A to pitch, B to swing. Easy, you know? Now, high heat comes out. I have to hold L2 down to throw a curveball, and I don't like it. What game do you think did it the best? The one that comes to mind, obviously, GoldenEye in 97 or 96 to uh, Nintendo 64. Is there a game in mind you have that just nailed every aspect in recent years? Okay, well, in the GoldenEye genre and stuff, so, okay, so there's two. One would be coin-op games, right? So in a game that I think is, like, the, one of the premier all-time, and it's actually, there's a guy named Eugene Jarvis, who I think was, like, one of the best game designers ever. And he did two coin-op games. He did Defender, and he did Robotron. And Robotron, to me, is, like, one of the ultimate game designs. Uh, it's just an amazingly well-balanced game that keeps you involved and engaged and that's, it's, it, that's one of those things, like you talk about simple, but there's simple and there's also, there's elegant, right? Mm-hmm. Elegant is when something simple works. Because sometimes simple just means it's not complicated. But when something's not complicated and it works and it's compelling, like you find with Ken Griffey, you know, that's elegant, right? Because people can do simple and it's boring. Right. But when simple works, it's elegant. And I think that's the ultimate. I think Robotron and Defender are great examples of that. A game on a console, on a home console, a game that I think is, uh, it's an amazing turning point in video games. I think, in, in historically, if we look back, this is going to be the bridge between 2D and 3D gaming, is Grand Theft Auto 3. Mm. Mm, yeah. Grand Theft Auto 3 to me. And I'll tell you about that game. There's a thing about yeah. that game that I've always been super interested in that game as a designer, because... Uh, the game has a super reprehensible theming, right? Anybody can attack the theming of the game because it's a horrible thing. If you go around 
killing people and trashing hookers to get some cash to go start you off in the game. It's kind of cathartic. It's kind of cathartic, but... <laughs> but it does have a cathartic element to it. I am currently... I don't know if you know, but I'm a psychotherapist now. Yeah. You know, so that's what I do for a living. And it's like, I get the catharsis of it. But here's the thing that's amazing to me. This is the elegance of Grand Theft Auto, okay? Is that it's not... A, if you look at the technology of the time, like... Uh, Nick probably recognizes this. The graphics in that game are good, but they're not like, holy crap, breakthrough. You know, they're right. good graphics for the time, but they weren't breakthrough graphics. And the game environment is sizable, but it's not the biggest gameplay space by any means, mm. but it feels big. But what they did was they took one gameplay area and they met, most people have to do a whole new environment for another level and a whole new environment for another level. And they found a way to make a level that was had enough options to it that they could lay layer play level after play level after play level in the same play space. And what that means is you can learn stuff about one mission while you're doing another. I can encounter things while I'm executing one mission. And then I realize later that's going to help me fill out another mission. The other thing they do in Grand Theft Auto that's amazing is they don't do what I call the key and lock problem. And that is like if I have 15 different guns in a game, but for this one particular you know, boss, I have to use this gun. Mm -hmm. You can use any weapon in the game to get any character in the game you want. They're just different styles of attacks, but they all work. Mm -hmm. And the idea that makes it intuitive. It's a world that you live in that works the way you would pretty much expect it to work, right? I'll and that is so hard to do in a video game. So does that, so I, I think yeah. it's elegant on that level. And I'll say too, just really quick, when I, because I, I played GTA and GTA 2 on regular PS with the uh, overhead view. And yeah. I remember putting in, P, uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 at my one friend Zach's house on like Christmas break. It came out like oh three or something, I want to say. And it was the first person kind of thing, if that's what you call I don't know if that's what you call it, but like, I, we were like blown away. Like, oh my God. Now you could, it's sad, but you could go up to people and kill them <laughs> instead of like doing it from a distance. <laughs> Wait, but you could engage the game but, and you, it was immersive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were times in Vice City, in Grand Theft Vice City, where I jumped off a building and I actually felt my stomach get lighter. I actually was physically <laughs> yeah. feeling like I was falling for a moment. And I thought that kind of buy-in into a game, that's immersion, right? That's where I'm totally captivated in the game. That, and they did that so economically with game mechanics that, I, that all it still stands as one of the best design, best design games I think I've ever played. Nice. That's a great fucking answer, man. Hey, you know, that's, that's awesome. Uh, Nick, Dan, anyone else want to jump in here? Yeah, but you know what? Even the games that oh, yeah. you look at, you look at some of the stuff that came out for PS5 now that's out. And I mean, the, the graphics and the, the realism that is in it, it, this now, this may go off into another tangent, but it makes you really wonder if we're living in a simulation Oh, Jesus. Jesus. You don't Just, have to get into that. <laughs> so, like, so like, what do, you, what do you see as, like, the future of, like, gaming and stuff? Like, is it going to be, like, more, like, 
in-house virtual reality stuff because I know like that's like people have to go out and do that like what's gonna be like the cool thing that like people are gonna be doing that we like might not even know about yet uh virtual reality is cool I think I think the big so in video gaming proper I think virtual reality is probably where you go for your most immersive experience and as you get uh better contact with your body and stuff so whether it becomes neurological connections or just physical connections uh, as you can start to experience and feel your gaming experience more you know where this is going (laughs) that's and it's just that's where things are heading and that's going to be intense but i think what's i think augmented reality is more significant sociologically and what i mean by that is that Augmented reality, A, is a, is a different way of engaging the actual world, right? Whereas virtual reality, has to, you have to have a fake world that you try to engage in and make sure you're in a clear space. Augmented reality lets you take the, the world you're used to and engage it in a fresh and new way. Now, that's pretty. There, there are things you can do with that that are beyond virtual reality because they have the reality component to it that, that's just... It adds an extra dimension to your experience. But the thing, the thing that's really huge is that augmented reality technology, you know, tech, if you look at tech in general, where do tech innovations come from? They used to come from government research grants, largely to defense contractors and some to universities. But it was big money stuff it took to do it. Now, technology advanced to the point where a few people in a garage can create a meaningful new technology that you can work with. So, you know, think of the applications for teaching, for learning, for home repair. When I can open up the hood of my engine, put on my goggles, and it can show me where to check everything, it can look and say, what's wrong with the connection here, move this thing over here, suddenly everyone is capable of doing way more than they're able to do. That's gonna change the world in a very significant way. Mm. That's just a guess, that's my projection. So I think the biggest things to come from video games are not the gaming experiences themselves, but the offshoots that people are going to end up taking advantage of that are developed from tech that came about because of video games. Mm-hmm. That, am I going too far? No, 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 it definitely does. But like with the augmented reality, similar to I think a couple of years ago, they had that Pokemon one that came out on everybody's phone that people were like looking through their phone. Right. Lines. Pokemon Go. Yep. But like, did that like almost say- it went? Virtual yeah. Boy, Virtual Boy, Nintendo came out with Virtual Boy. Remember that? Back in like the early 90s. I mean, Dan, you might, I know where I'm only three years older. You might actually be too young for this. Howard, do you remember they tried Virtual Boy and it just did not go over well? I do. You know, that, that goes back to what you were saying yeah. earlier. You know, what's up ahead game. of its time. Oh, really? People yeah. aren't ready for it. It was just like you plugged in like a go- 3D goggles and it just did not go off the shelves. It just, it yeah, it was whack. the 90s. It kind, it kind of just wasn't ready. Like no one was ready for that stuff. So. In, the 70s, in the 70s, it was polyamory. Nobody was ready for it yet. You know? <laughs> but it found its way around eventually. So. Yeah. Uh, Nick, you never know. Better. Well, no, no, I was going to say that, I mean, they use a lot of that technology already, even with like uh, flight simulators. So uh, you were saying how you were uh, how you are like a psychotherapist and it's like specializing like in Silicon Valley and stuff. Like, what is like one of like the biggest things that like you see as um, 
like a challenge or an issue with like the people that like you're dealing with? Is it like the tight turnarounds like you've dealt with before with saying I'm getting something done with five weeks or is it like just having such a high outlook of what could be accomplished? Like what are you seeing as like the big issue with Silicon Valley? So with Silicon Valley, I actually, I wrote an article about this that is kind of interesting because Silicon Valley, I, I call it, it's got the illusion of diversity, right? Because the thing about Silicon Valley is you look around and you see people from every corner of the world. You see every kind of person here in Silicon Valley. So you think it's a very diverse environment, right? But Silicon Valley is not a diverse environment at all. Because if you think about it, there was this thing I call the intellectual gold rush of the late 90s and early 2000s, right? Where everybody thought, oh my God, Silicon Valley, I'm going to go there and be brilliant and I'm going to get rich. And so it, what it did was the best and the brightest and most ambitious from all over the world all flooded Silicon Valley to the point where it squeezed everybody else out. And because it's a peninsula, there's no place for anybody else to be. Everybody else got squeezed way out. And that's what makes it so expensive and so crazy. Right. But what you have is you have this area of super uh, high intellect, super high uh, potential and super and high pressure people, people who are super success oriented in all different kinds of fields. So here's what happens in Silicon Valley is people come from all over the world. The best, the brightest, the most ambitious come from all over the world to Silicon Valley to be average. These are people who have been the absolute top of the stack in every environment they have been in their whole life, and they show up here, and they're just another Joe or Jane. And that, that's a major head trip for some people. Yeah. Howard, I have, I have two questions for you, uh, but I want to wait till like a little bit later. Um, if anyone else has any questions for Howard, jump Okay, but I may have four or five answers for you. Uh, no, that's fine, because, yeah, they're, they're weird questions. Uh, Nick, do you want to jump in with any more stuff? I, I did want to ask, just to Go piggyback on. off of what you were saying about, you know, with VR development and, or just with game development now, where, you know, like five guys in a garage can make a game and it can be hugely successful. I mean, look at the game Among Us that just came out. I think four people worked on that game in their off time and it's huge now. Um, like, what were your what were your development teams like when you were in the industry? And like, what what like what was your like work day like or what was that communication like? Nick's question. Oh, man, I've got some great stories about that. I mean, this book is just full of the hijinks and stuff we used to do because we were trying to explore what a creative environment is. A development team back then was basically me, right? <laughs> and then eventually it was me and an animator. And then we also had a pool of sound people. So if you needed like a tune or some sound effects and stuff, you could get some of that. But it was mostly, initially, it was mostly, you know, one program or one game. And, and there was a beauty to that. That was like the speedboat model, right? Because nowadays you have, you have sort of the ocean liner model, mm -hmm. right? Where it's a huge uh, monolithic team that goes. Now, you can, you can have a lot of fun on an ocean liner, and you can carry a lot of supplies and do a lot of stuff on an ocean liner. But the one thing you can't do on an ocean liner is change course very quickly. There's the speedboat, you can zip around. <clears throat> so what do you like? Do you like to deliver a major party in a huge port? 
or do you like to have the zip into the harbor and see what's here? And then if we don't like it, zip out and go somewhere else. That was more my style. Mm -hmm. uh, some people like it. So back then, the main feature was the idea that, you know, it was flexibility. You didn't have huge design documents. You didn't have people saying, this is where we need to go. Licensing was just starting to pick up, which, which influences the direction, the potential design directions for a game. Uh, it was freedom. It was freedom. But on the other hand, it was scary because you're, what happens when, when you win, when you do something good, it's all yours. And it's like, it's amazing. Great. It's beautiful. Yeah. When it doesn't work and it sucks, well, that's all yours too. <laughs> right. right. You got no one else to blame. When you're on a big team, you can go, oh, those designers suck, or I can't believe those programmers couldn't pull this off. Always you always got other. Design. Always pass it off to design. <laughs> always. Exactly. Because if we knew the right thing to do, it would have worked. Right. <laughs> so, and it's, and you know, there's a truth to that, and, there, and that's okay. But, you know, responsibility, not everybody's into it. Mm -hmm. and, and also, if it is all yours, you know, how do you deal with it? With, uh, what if I can't do it? Right. You know, what if I can't make it? There were people, there were nervous breakdowns at Atari. I mean, people literally got carried away. I mean, literally, people came and carried them physically away because they went catatonic. You saw stuff like that at Atari. Not all the time. But more than once. <laughs> Some people could not take it. It was a lot of pressure. It was a very, it was a fun place to be. It was an exciting place to be. It was a crazy place to be. But it was an intense place to be. And that for me, that's what I liked about it. I like high intensity. But it's not for everybody. But you also had the luxury of coming from the Northeast, too. I think you were moving, you know, like. It, it, oh, baby, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Growing up in Jersey, yeah. I was looking to get out of the Northeast to find something more intense, which was when I got to California, people people did not quite understand where I was coming from, right. but they knew I came from the East Coast. Oh, man. I, I, I talk have, a lot slower. I've actually lost my Jersey accent a lot. That's I'm worried I'm, mine's going to go. No, don't let it, Nick. Always keep the Jersey pride in you. Yeah, uh, Howard, the two questions I want to ask. All right, uh, what's the worst video game system ever made, in your opinion, if you, if you want to throw that out there? The worst video game system ever made? I don't yeah. know that there's been any bad video game systems made, really. Right. Uh, I think some systems have not been exploited or explored as much as they could be. But, uh, I mean, you know, early, early on, there were systems that were just everybody had Pong and just trying to right. read how, how many different games can you make out of Pong? You know, there was that kind of thing. So it was kind of silly to take something that's really like one app and make it sound like a bunch. But, you know, the 2600 may have been one of the worst <laughs> game systems ever made, to tell you the truth. It was probably one of the lowest capabilities. What do you then? Let me rephrase it. What do you think is one that got a bad rap, that didn't get the like shine it deserved? Maybe like a Sega Saturn or a Game Gear, something like that. N sixty four, man. Yeah, N sixty four, something. Well, the sixty four wasn't really that bad. I never saw it get knocked, and I saw some pretty good work come out on it. But uh, and Goldeneye was a great game. Mm. Yeah. But uh, and Zelda was an excellent game there yes. also. 
that was the Yokarina of Time. Was that that one? Yeah. Ocarina of Time. And uh, last question: What do you miss about Jersey? Anything when you moved out there that you really? Oh missed? man, pizza and cheesesteaks, baby. Thank you. you can't Thank you. Get oh, a cheesesteak out here and pizza. People out here talk about New York pizza. I've been here almost forty years. I have found two places. Wow. Uh, in California, I where spot. I can get what I would say is actually a decent approximation. But if I go to Jersey, any corner, yeah. and, I, and, and it's there, it's the brick place. And whenever I go back to Jersey, that's the first, my first stop is some corner in a neighborhood and get the pizza. Cause man, I just, I have never lost my taste for Jersey pizza. I didn't, and get a I steak didn't, too. Oh man. I didn't realize that till our friend Eric, he moved out to Oregon for two years. He came back for a holiday, right? And we went to a like a bar, and he ordered the pizza, and he was scarfing it down. And I looked at him. I go, "What are you doing?" He goes, "You don't understand, man. You get pizza out of the West Coast. It's disgusting. It's like it's like less as it's like a Domino's pizza is even better than that. It's just so bad. So true. Now I do not miss Rolling Rock. Oh, I love Rolling Rock. Wait, the the beer? Yeah. Oh, it's great beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's great beer, but it's, you know, it's, what I'm saying is you come out here, you can do better than Rolling Rock for beer, but you cannot get close to pizza. What about bagels out there? How are the bagels? Bagels, you can, you can find a decent bagel if you can find a deli. <laughs> if you can't find a deli out here, you can find great Chinese food. You can find all kinds of Pacific Rim food. Uh, you know, Chinese food is way better out here. Uh, Italian food, I kind of miss. Because in mm. Jersey, you can get amazing Italian food, and that includes pizza and, and steaks, but a good hoagie, you know, stuff like that, a good sub. You know, I miss that stuff. I have Nobody out here knows to put Italian dressing on a sub. What, you know, so it's like, what are you going to do? One more question about Jersey. Pork roll or Taylor ham? Uh, I got to go with Taylor ham. Really? Damn, we're all pork roll guys. But all right, man. But, uh, I, I, before we get but I'd still go with the cheesesteak. <laughs> right, I'm uh, too busy with the cheesesteak. I can't even make it to Friendly's. <laughs> I love Friendly's. <laughs> I, uh, before we get to our final segment, I just got to pass it around. Any other questions you got for Howard here? And by the way, I'm still bowling. Really? Oh, yeah. I was in two leagues for a while. I've definitely held my average. <laughs> Were you the best bowler out there? Uh, not the best, but I, I was in the top two, and my dad's getting old, you know? Hi, <laughs> 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 right, Howard, uh, really quick, uh, promote your books coming out and stuff. I will be getting this book, too. I want to know when it comes out, the Once Upon Atari book. So promote where we can find you and your book and stuff before we get to our final segment here. Well, you're going to be able to find me soon at onceuponatari.com. Okay. And you can always find me at hswarshaw.com for your psycho for all your psychological needs. And and you'll be able to find pointers there to other books that I've done. But well, Once Upon Atari, the title of the book is Once Upon Atari: How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Nice. I like it. And it's uh, and it is it is thirty it is three hundred and twenty or pages of just you will laugh you will cry you will kiss 15 bucks goodbye <laughs> it's uh it's got unbelievable stuff it's all the all the stories of this the, the stuff that we did inside atari that nobody knew we did that we 
we, we were protected from the police. Wow. <laughs> The, 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 we knew that security had instructions to keep the police away from our building. So we did anything we wanted to do in that building. What, it was a pretty it, amazing place to be. When, is it, when does it drop? When does it come out? When do you, when do you release uh, it? It's going to be three weeks at the latest, hopefully a little sooner. It'll okay, definitely awesome. be clear for Christmas. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, uh, now our final – oh, do you have an Instagram or Twitter or anything or not? Oh, on Amazon. Oh, I do. I do. I have a Twitter at HS Warshaw, okay. W-A-R-S-H-A-W. And uh, on uh, am, on uh, Instagram, I think I'm at HSWMFT. Great. I am okay. an MFT. But MFT isn't means fine tobacco. Remember that LSMFT, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco? Lucky, that's probably the yeah. I mean, I grew up when there were still cigarette commercials. And there was a brand of cigarettes called Lucky Strikes. Yep. And they had this commercial, they would go, L-S-M-F-T. And they'd go, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And I became a marriage and family therapist, which is an MFT. And every time I hear someone say MFT, I still in my head think, means fine tobacco. <laughs> it's a very strange place to be, but I'm a strange guy. All right, Howard, uh, this is our final segment now. We call it our gun to your head segment because uh, I know you're on the West Coast. It's dinner time around there, so I don't want to keep you. I want, I want you to go have some food. Uh, go get the best pizza out in California you can find. So, so it's I don't want to miss the chance to have a gun to my head, that's for sure. <laughs> so it's gun to your head is kind of like a would you rather. Um, it's a little different than Coors or Bud Light or pizza or steak. We like to do a little wordplay. Like since we sort of started out as a hip-hop podcast, we do some wordplay with it. So, uh, what we do is we each ask you two questions, all right? You got to answer them. Like first thing that comes to your head, what, you, what your answer is. And you have to pick a winner at the end of your favorite question. Okay, are you ready? Okay, but, you know, wordplay, I don't know if I know that enough words, but, uh, you know, we'll see if we can make it work. It's fine. It's basically us asking a question. We're the ones who ask the stupid questions and you answer them. So I'll go first here, okay? And I made this little video game-ish. So uh, would you rather live next door to the Angry Birds or Earthworm Jim? Angry Birds. Okay. Damn, that was too quick. <laughs> when, when Scott inhales after his question, he thinks it's good. He goes, yeah. <laughs> All right. Would you rather live in the Matrix for one month or only eat tricks for a month of May? Nice. I'd rather multiply the Matrix. All right. Sounds good. So he goes with that. I'll give it to Eric here. That's a great question. All right. Would you rather sell your soul for a million dollars or never have souls in your shoes? Oh, if I had a million dollars, I could make souls in my shoes. I, I would probably sell my soul. And then I would find a way to negotiate it back. <laughs> would you rather relive the E.T. backlash or get your back slashed by E.T.? Oh, I would definitely rather relive the E.T. backlash. <laughs> it's a funny visual, I guess. E.T. can be a mother with that stuff. All right, we'll go to Brian here. All right. <clears throat> for for a million dollars, would you rather have to beat Mike Tyson's punch out without losing or outpunch Mike Tyson? Uh, for a million dollars, I'd rather outpunch Mike Tyson. Wow. Because I know that won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you rather be a playable character in Street Fighter or be known as a fighter in the streets? 
Oh, I'd rather be a playable character in Street Fighter for sure. That's pretty cool. I yeah. can see that. All right, uh, we'll go to Dan. We'll go to Dan last. Unless Nick, you got any or no? Oh man, uh, I'm I'm seriously unprepared for these. Uh, That's fine. Go for it, Nick. Mario or Luigi? Mario. Mario, nice. Um, I guess the only one, Mister or Mrs. Pac-Man. Ms. Of course, you gotta go with the girl. Dan, send it to you. All right. Would you rather be a gamer or a player? I'm going with the big fun thing. <laughs> I'd rather be a gamer. Okay. Um, would you I'm rather? Not sure what that means, though. I, I wonder what's the big pun thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it didn't like work. The, it, it failed. Yeah, I'm game for playing, but I'll play a game. <laughs> um, and then, would you rather only be able to play Pac-Man, or every time you travel, you're with a pack of men? <laughs> oh, I'd rather play Pac-Man. I I get enough men at the office. <laughs> hey, Howard, what was your favorite question? Oh, well, Eric hasn't gone. Yeah, he oh, no, Eric, Mine aren't that memorable. Mine was <laughs> Eric had, no, Eric had the million-dollar shoes. Yeah. And the ET, and the ET, yeah. Uh, I got to say that, uh, you know, selling my soul was a good question. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't understand, but, you know, it's up to decide. Howard, you know what? This is awesome. Um, hey, we appreciate you coming on. We'll let you go now. Uh, definitely going to be looking forward to your book coming out. I hope you come on again sometime, man, if you're willing to. I'd be happy to come on again. You guys are a lot of fun. I really thank you for having me, Scott. Oh. I really appreciate the invite. You guys were all cool. I really, really enjoyed it.